0: Is there a good time, Charlie, with us tonight? I, I'm looking for one good time, Charlie. I, I don't, well, I have to again uh, have to go back there, right to the start. There uh, uh, is this is this an expression that was only used in the Middle West? I don't want to uh, to uh, break the frame of reference. You know, you know what is it? The frame of reference, of course. Uh, the The frame of reference is that when you're recognized by somebody or something and they put a label under you, uh, automatically be- you become what the label says. Now, that, that gives you a frame of reference. For example, uh, I want to thank the New York Times for writing about my radio program. I'm officially coming on record here as saying... Of course, I noticed, though, that they that they wrote up me, my, my show, you know, the Times. you see that, Ed, it was wonderful. They wrote it up uh, about a week ago, last Monday, see, and they wrote the whole thing up. And then they have a list there, things recommended on radio... Well, I wasn't included. (laughs) Get together there. uh, But that's all right. Uh, I I appreciate it, and it was wonderful. I'd like to know who wrote it up. Whoever it was didn't have the guts to sign his name. I noticed that, that the the articles on the radio page are always signed, you know. Well, this one, there's no signing there, nobody's name under it. But maybe that makes it even more official because, you see, it represents, then, the New York Times itself. Well, one of the most... One of the most interesting results of the write-up was that immediately I received about 250 letters that expressed consternation and confusion. Uh, that, that, that suddenly it, it, uh, it became apparent that something was there, something was afoot, and that there was a label now attached. <laughs> well, of course, we spend most of our lives searching for identity. Have you found out who you are yet? Oh, come on now. Please don't come here and plead for any kind of sympathy. If you're going to plead for sympathy, speak up. I can't stand anybody groveling at this hour. Now, groveling is between the hours of 9 and 5.30. That's on your regular company time. Don't, please don't grovel. Please, not on your own time. Don't grovel here. I have No groveling. I'm sorry for you, and I, I'm I'm sorry the way your eyes are popping and all that, but I mean that's the way it is. It's a problem. It has to do with uh, you know glands and that sort of thing. Now, now uh, while we're on the subject of, oh, of course, there's all kinds of things that are bothering us. No question about it. Uh, uh, seriously, have you found out who you are? I mean, how long have you been really looking for the answer? Uh, while on the subject of uh, finding out who you are, is there a good time, Charlie, with us tonight, or or has the general world condition? preempted the Good Time Charlie's time, which often happens. Speaking of being preempted, I will be preempted tomorrow night by several Good Time Charlies who are running for the uh, office of mayor of the city of New York. And I hope you'll be sitting there on the sidelines of rooting your favorite candidate home. <laughs> Cheering him on. Well, uh, <laughs> on the subject of Good Time Charlie, uh, I, I, the, why I ask this is that is that one of the very earliest recollections that I have of of someone being described along that line was my father described one of my uncles once as a good time charlie well his name was carl and i couldn't you know i couldn't figure out what he meant by good time charlie because i had an uncle charlie and and he was never referred to as good time uncle charlie As a matter of fact uncle charlie had nothing but bad times most of the time and and no one ever said he was a good time charlie but uncle carl was a good time charlie very difficult for a kid to understand and then in the next breath, my, my father described him as a big butter and egg man. Well, I happen to know that Uncle Carl never once had a butter and egg route. Ruth, zoot, Uh What he did was play the banjo. He didn't have butter and eggs. And so, uh, all in one sentence, he was a, a good-time Charlie and a big butter and egg man. And, uh, of course, there was a long-involved discussion with me then trying to straighten that whole thing out. I was never convinced, ever, really, that, that you know, it's like dialectic materialism or something. You ever tried to argue with a communist or a religious zealot? Uh, you can't. There, there's a certain amount of, you got to believe somewhere along the line about something. It has nothing to do with logic. It's a belief. <laughs> and uh, that, that throws, uh, I see, one called, he's not an American, no American good time Charlie. Are there any good time Charlies out there or big butterneg men? Uh <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if you could call a, a hippie who sits down in the pad somewhere and, and plays the guitar and sings folk songs a good time Charlie, uh, <laughs> because that's all he's after, you know, uh, a big butternut man. And then, and oh, yeah, then there was another one, you see. And then it was a little, little further on in the discussion. My father described my aunt Min as a red hot cookie. Well, now that was very difficult to, to, to. Uh, to uh, <laughs> I mean, really, to absorb about an ant. I mean, a, a cookie, a red-hot cookie. And, of course, I immediately could see gingerbread men, all kinds of things with uh, raisins for eyes and all that, you know. And there was a long, involved discussion about that. I never quite got that one. There's, really, there is no, honest to, honest to John, there is no actual communication between generations. That's a fact. Now, most of you are lucky to be in a generation. You can find somebody who can communicate. The other slobs that are in your generation, you know, I, I think that me, along with about fifteen other guys, have no generation. There's nobody I can communicate with. I mean, it's the truth. I mean, uh, it's a fact. Because all the guys, all the guys who were around when you know when I was a kid and all that, they're mad about things that never got me mad. It's a fact, and uh, it's a truth. And and so I mean, I can't get mad about the same things that Norman Mailer's mad about. I should, you know, we're same same crew and all that. And he doesn't get mad about things I get mad Nobody does, actually. And by the way, I never said that beauty was an adjective. I said beauty, <laughs> beauty is, is a noun that, that refers to a condition, does not refer to a specific. How many... Have you ever had seven beauties once in your Lufthansa bag? You know where I can go out and buy nine beauties? You see? So the point being that, that we have made a condition, which is a noun, of course. Uh, into a, into a specific thing. It's like uh, calling a, a happy, nine happies, uh, or, or, uh, or nine wonderfuls, or uh, seven, uh, see, beauty is not essentially a noun, really. You get into the, you got, oh, it is a noun, it isn't a noun, this, get getting involved, oh, it's a terrible thing. Now, uh, of course, on the other hand, my father goes along, see, and, and he refers he refers to my Uncle Tom as a smooth article. Well, Uncle Tom had more jowls than you uh, see this side of a jello mold. It was wild. He jiggled all over the place. No, it's the truth. I mean, have you ever seen a jello mold? A jello mold? A mold of? Uh, that's why I can't dig tomato aspic. It looks like a pile of old jowls. Uh, it was an awful thing. Doolaps. You know what it is it? A doolap? <laughs> well, it's a doolap. <laughs> it's a doolap. Oh, you've seen Elsa Maxwell. Well, then you know about dewlaps. Uh, you know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with dewlaps. I mean, a good, impressive dewlap, a human chandelier. Nothing but dewlaps swinging all over the place, you know, a little pendants. And and uh, uh, Uncle Tom had these dewlaps all over, and he was referred to by my father as a real smooth article. Well, again, there was a long discussion as to what involved a smooth article. You see, it's a problem of... I, I, I guess it's a problem of basic... Uh, it's semantics again, semantics. Now, I'm quite sure that, that at least 900,000 kids out there don't even know what I'm saying when I refer to a good-time Charlie. Well, either do I, kid. I never got it straight from my old man. Actually, Uncle Carl was a good-time Charlie. Is there a good-time Charlie out there listening now? <laughs> it gets all confused, you know. its a, it's, it's a matter of... Now, of course, there are other things, too. I, I, uh, my father used to refer to things occasionally as being hunky-dory. I never could quite understand what he meant by things being hunky-dory. Uh, I, wouldn't it wouldn't be great if some news commentator tonight came on uh, and says, Well, things are hunky-dory. <laughs> That's tonight's analysis of the news. <laughs> or he comes out, he says, Things really look hotsy-totsy tonight. <laughs> things haven't looked hunky-dory in a long time, have they? I wonder where they derived the phrase hunky-dory. You see, here's one of the problems. Hold them there. If it's a good time, Charlie, you'll hold on for a long time. Uh, uh, you know, one of the things that, that got me hung up when the old man used to say things were hunky-dory was because in our neighborhood there were a lot of people living around there we called hunkies. And they called themselves hunkies. They were, they were Hungarians, see. Uh, and, and so when he, he said, everything is hunky-dory... I assumed that he was referring to a hunky named Dora. There was one that lived two blocks away. And there was a long discussion about that. You see, hunky Dory. Is anybody, hello, hello, good time Charlie? Hello, Charlie? Hello, good time Charlie? All right, let's, let's hear a couple of good time Charlie phrases. Oh, that isn't a good time Charlie. Uh, oh, you're wrong again, Doc. A good time Charlie never goofs off. A good time Charlie only has hot diggity dog times. He yeah, he says things like hot dog. And uh, he yeah, a, a good time Charlie can honestly, without batting an eye, uh, give a good belt out, a good solid whoopee. That's a real good time Charlie. Oh, no, no, no. You think a good time Charlie is a guy that goops off? Ah, au contraire. That is not at all the same thing. Not at all. A guy that goops off is just a bum. Well, I'm I'm looking for a good time, Charlie. That can honestly holler, whoopee, wow! And every so often, he's hollering, hot diggity dog, when he's dealing his pinochle heads, you know that kind of thing. And, and he has a corine that he occasionally appears on the boardwalk in Atlantic City with. You see, that's that's a good time, Charlie. <laughs> a corine or a cutie, yeah, or a red hot number. You see, a red hot mama. That's right. Good-time Charlies only swing with red-hot mamas. You, you know, so that, that lets you out, okay? Right, nice try. Right. See, it's problem nomenclature again. Speaking of good-time Charlies, this is W O R A M AM and FM New York. And uh, <laughs> we will be here. I'm sorry, madam, if I'm laughing at my... I'm not laughing at my own joke, you know. I, I, must, I must assure you. You know, it's interesting. Uh, if you laugh at your own joke and there's nobody else laughing behind you, you know, like a like a don't bother with. If if there's a crowd, you see, and you you laugh, nobody seems to object. Now, for example, every time Mort Sall says something he laughs. He does. He says, John Foster Dulles Ha 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 Nobody objects, because everybody else laughs. But when I go ha <laughs> I'm laughing at the joke, ma'am. Not mine, but the joke. A very different joke. <laughs> There'll be another chapter of the joke tomorrow night in the primaries. Uh, you know the joke is a long one. It's a, it's I think that man himself is the longest shaggy dog story in history. I Really do I, I think that man is the I repeat the longest shaggy dog story in history of course you see history is a man-made thing too uh, uh, When we refer to history, we're only referring to the history of men. You know what I mean by history. It's only history of men we do not refer to big dinosaurs of the past in history uh, there must have been dinosaurs that rose above other dinosaurs. There must have been giant dinosaur battles. There must have been all those things. You know, there's another kind of history. Has it occurred to you that, that great actions occurred on this world that had nothing to do with men, per se? And so, hence, we do not even include them in history. Like giant, oh, fantastic glaciers that marched across the continent and dug out the Great Lakes, for example. Now, that was bigger than the Civil War. Must have been. What a ruckus. Wow. Digging up the Great Lakes. Have you ever thought of digging the Great Lakes out yourself? Whew! It's not in history. And I think it's a historical event, you know. <laughs> Actually, of course, there you go again. you all involved there. No Red Hot Mamas out there tonight? Oh, yeah. No, no, no. I'm not, how about a smooth article? Is there any smooth articles out there? Huh? Well, that's what I thought. You know, uh, speaking of... Oh, speaking of smooth articles, we have General Tire with us tonight. And, uh, oh, boy... Oh, that's a terrible way to go into a commercial. We have General Tire. If if you're driving a set of Baldies, which are smooth articles, I would suggest that you get yourself a set of brand-new General Jet Air tires. They're all bumpy, and uh, they keep their bumps longer than other tires. So uh, I think you'll find them nice, real good. Uh, Join the hundreds of thousands of car owners that are jet airborne. That means flying. Take advantage of this sensational special offer from your general tire dealer that makes it possible for you to afford premium quality tires. Go down and see them, all right? <laughs> Do they still refer to... How long has it been since you've driven on a Baldy? You know, I used to have tires on... Uh, I had a V8 once when I was in school. Uh, a V8, uh, a V8 Ford, and it had a rumble seat and everything. It was a real wild little Ford, and it was... It had about... You see, those, those cars were not secondhand. There's no telling how many hands they were. Uh, no, that's true. We know no such thing as a second-hand car. Come on now. Uh, some of these things had a longer family history than the, well, let's say the Plantagenets. I mean, it went down through all kinds of generations and hands and bar sinisters, uh, the whole business. You see, when you got a when you got a car in those days, and you bought a, a car, you know, you didn't get a title. You got a a, a genealogical family tree that told who had own it, you know, all these wild people in the past. And I had this car, and I, I really, whenever I, I'm on the air here, and I'm talking about General Jet Airborne tires with Nigen cord and all that stuff, and it says you can get up to 7 to $10, trade in on your tires. My car was worth $8 with the tires. That's <laughs> the truth, you know. And, and I would never think of spending more than, say, $0.40 cents for a tire at the junkyard. And you know how I could tell how the tires, how I would pick the tires would be how brightly I could see the sun through them when I held them up and looked at it. I had a color chart, you know, I had a, you know, like, uh, have you ever seen one of these, uh, (laughs) one of these uh, things you use to determine what lens opening and what stops you're going to use to take pictures with? And it works by color elimination or or, uh, light eliminations and you you pick up the brightest uh, number. Yeah, all it does, you know. And this way I used to hold up, I'd say, well, this is a 40-cent tire, you see, because it would let through more sun than my sunglasses. I, you know, I'd have to close my eyes. So I had real baldies, let me tell you that. I had, I had such baldies sometimes that you could read the, the, the manufacturer's label of the tubes I was using through the tire. You could read, yeah, that's a fact. And you could see the patches. You know, I used to have tubes with, that would have all these quilt-like patches, about 400 patches around you, a little square red, blue, green, blue, yellow, all these wild colors of the vulcanizing patches. It used to look like you had a calico tiger You go down the street, and you, know, you could see the patches right through. I'm sorry, madam. You don't know about this, do you? It's, it's boring. Yeah, I know. Well, you'd be surprised how you bore me. I mean, you'd be surprised. Oh, I'd break out in the itches. You know, speaking of boring, uh, I think... Uh, uh, there was a little note that came out in... Uh, uh, one more thing, speaking of cars. I have to say this. Did you read that wild thing? People, no matter what they're doing, think of the trivia. In the end, I-, I can just see a lot of guys, the day the big atom bomb attack comes, he's running down the street, and he's madder than the than the dickens, you see, because he forgot to get batteries for his transistor radio. It's the only thing that's bothering him. A lot of people, you know, when when we're confronted with a giant thing, we generally settle for... Uh, fist fighting it out about a little thing that's a fact and so here did you read about this guy in Berlin here last week three guys crashed one of the uh, one of the crossing points you know three guys from East Germany they, they rushed through and the machine gun slugs are flying it says three young men drove up under the guns of American tanks to a crossing point today between East and West Berlin and uh, the shells were flying and everything and they got on the other side and immediately as soon as they got on the other side they pushed the car back and the reason they pushed the car back was the driver explained to newsmen that he had escaped from East Germany in his boss's car and he decided he really ought not to keep it. (laughs) I think that's a great story you know (laughs) in spite of everything and this, this happens often during war you know it's really... Uh, it's during wartime, guys will be shooting at each other with flamethrowers, and in the middle of it, two guys will start fist fighting, two enemy soldiers, you know, and, and one, guy, one guy gets highly indignant because the other one kicked him below the belt. <laughs> this is a fact. What a rotten thing to do. And uh, it's, it's a strange code of morality that runs through a gigantic sea of immorality. We are, we are always confronted with this thing. You know, it's a truth. Did you read about these guys that were getting squirted uh, with, with the hoses? And so uh, it was funny. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's an unfunny, funny situation. They came up to their command post, and the next thing they knew were four guys from the other side were squirting them with a fire hose. And these were the communists. They're squirting them with fire hose. Well, you know what a fire hose is. I mean, it does a lot of stuff. It pushes you around, you know, among other things. So the two guys immediately threw tear gas at them. Well, then the guys with the fire hose retreated. Did you hear about it? They, they retreated. They hid. And then two more guys showed up to take their place, and the same thing happened. They threw tear gas. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny, uh, and, and you're trying to tell me that, that guys secretly don't want war. Obviously, this was being ad-libbed. And, uh, and for no other reason than, the, you know, it was there. That's all that that often a war is is started merely because peace is there just like uh people will climb mont everest because it's there peace is no good unless you have a war understand what i mean by that that health is no good unless you've been sick once <laughs> And you say, well, I was sick once, so I'm happy to be healthy all my life. No, you forget about being sick. You see, you've got to be sick periodically. Very, very, very peculiar thing. You know, speaking of being sick, uh, a couple of... I'm going to read something to you that we read once before on the show, several times, as a matter of fact. And this is a, a recurrent theme today in, I'd say, in not so much American life, but probably more American life today than any other single country, merely because we have better communications. We hear about more things. You'd be surprised that large sections of the world don't even know that the world is in any kind of a bad condition. Are you aware of that? Just because communications aren't good. And in many sections of the world, uh, they, they are totally unaware that the world is in danger. Again, because there is little communication. And so naturally, they feel differently about the world than you do. Their attitude is much different. Uh, On the other hand, uh, there are large numbers of people who, because of imperfect communication, have a distorted idea of how bad the world is. Communications are always imperfect. And they're imperfect on both sides. You can feel, one, that the world is not in a very bad condition when it is. And two, you can feel that the world is in a terrible condition when it isn't in as bad a condition as you think it is. Distortion again see distortion works both ways now now uh, what happens when people are confronted you see with the insoluble very interesting problem. Are you aware of of some of the Pavlovian experiments with with mice and rats and dogs? Not only Pavlovian but almost all psychologists have done various experiments that present the insoluble problem, the problem that seems to have a solution, but in actuality is not solvable. In the end, interestingly enough, I've seen a couple of these experiments, for example, with, with rats. Here's one typical example is this, that you ring a buzzer, and as soon as you do, you uh, you have a door at the end of the little... at the end of the box, and the, the door is yellow. You ring a buzzer, the yellow door opens, the cheese is inside of the door. The rat goes and gets the cheese and is happy. You ring a buzzer again, two days later when he's hungry, the yellow door opens, he goes and gets the cheese. You do this until he begins to assume that whenever the buzzer rings, the yellow door will open and there will be cheese. Okay, at that point then, you ring the buzzer, you open the door, there's no cheese. Well, the rat will run to the door anyway. You see, he doesn't know it. So he goes and he looks. He says, what is this? He goes back and sits down. You ring the buzzer again. He jumps up and runs over there again. Nothing. On the third time, you open the, the red door. And inside the red door is the cheese. This time the buzzer rings. He runs over to the red door. Now, you, you do this until finally he, is, he assumes now it's going to be in the red door. Then suddenly you switch to the yellow door. And then one time you, you do this, and there are no there's no cheese in either one. But both doors open. He sits down, and he looks mad. After running to both of them. Then finally you do the ultimate thing, which is the most interesting of all. You finally press the button, the buzzer buzzes, the doors open, and there is no cheese in either one. He sits down. Then you immediately follow that with pressing the buzzer, both doors open and there is cheese in both. He won't take either. He just sits and looks. Because by this time he is incapable of a decision. He can't recognize cheese anymore when he sees it. That's a fact. Now you think that you think that I'm kidding you? It's true. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's true. And, and time and time and time again, this has worked out. You say it doesn't work with people? Oh, yeah? Oh, don't kid yourself, Dad. That you are jumping at a lot of cheese these days that wouldn't even have been cheese ten years ago to you, and vice versa. Uh, that, that a lot of things that are cheese, you're not jumping at. Uh, merely because what has appeared to be cheese 25 times in the past five years has turned out to be nothing. So in in the end you you wind up with immobility. Well, so what happens you see when this is done over a certain period of time a whole nation become can become immobile because it can't tell what's good and bad anymore. Especially when the rat turns around and starts to esc- excoriate himself for running to the wrong door. He blames himself, you say, in the end. And and uh it's it's an interesting problem because we are all in a sense Burdened with uh, two things: one, a sense of guilt, which is, by the way, part and parcel of all men. If you if you know that, if you know that all men have a sense of guilt, you can use that and turn that sense of guilt into a positive thing. A very interesting problem there. However, uh, that's that's, uh, that's another aspect of the problem. We will not even go into guilt tonight. <laughs> that's in the next semester. However, uh, the 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 sheer effect of cause and effect the sheer result of cause and effect response and lack of response is often the result of conditioning and so you will assume a man is speaking sense merely because you have heard other men speak like this in the past just as the rat himself assumes that the cheese is behind the yellow door merely because it has been in the past and all the aspects of cheese is there. The buzzer buzzed, the door opened. And, and many a rat will even react as though the cheese was there. He will salivate. And he's salivating to nothing but a sound, which is a symbol of cheese, but not cheese. Are you following me here? Oh, hey. yes, sir, that's my baby. <laughs> We're getting into some, some deep water. And don't, you see, the, and another thing, too, is that people are just like, let's take music now. We can, we can go into theories that have nothing to do with, let us say, uh, with political things. Let's say subjective art forms. Now, you assume that because a man writes using the octave system of writing, eight tones, and he writes in a linear fashion, which is to say he writes with a tune, that he is writing good music, or at least understandable music, and logical music. If a man writes using five notes, which is an oriental scale, a pentatonic scale, and uses a different system of melodic development, which is horizontal rather than linear, you assume he is writing insane music that is nutty and ridiculous. The reason being, of course, you have been conditioned to one and not to the other. And that gets quite, quite complicated too. And so, in the end, you, you both might be discussing music, but discussing music uh, in, in completely different terms. Uh, just like, like when the Russians say peace, they are not talking about peace the way you mean peace. Did you read Reston's, James Reston's discussion of peace? Well, very interesting. The three types of definition of peace that are used in the communist socialist camp, the dynamic peace, you know what dynamic peace means? That means uh, that peace is a kind of peace that means that as long as we can shove you around in any way short of war and you will continue to retreat, that is peace. That's dynamic peace. That if we gain our ends without blowing each other up, that is peace. Our ends being you. Now, that's peace. No, that really is called peace to some people. On the other hand, there is what they call a militant peace. Oh, boy, that's a loaded one. Militant peace is the kind of thing, a fascinating kind of peace, which I witnessed, by the way, in one of the east, uh, eastern countries, of 40,000 guys marching along with tin hats and flamethrowers on their backs, carrying a big sign saying, we're for peace. <laughs> that's an interesting kind of peace. Then there is the third kind of peace, which is literally peace peace, passive peace, which is Titoistic peace, in a sense. He just, you know, there it is. They got a communist country and that's the end of it. They're not about to hit other people on the head to create other communist countries. That's a different kind of peace. And that is looked upon as aggression by many people who believe in the other forms of peace. <laughs> so, you know, oh boy, you don't know which door is going up. The yellow one, the green one, the red one, the cheese is there and the buzzers are buzzing. And in the end you just sit there and scratch. You do, Literally. And, and uh, so it gets quite quite involved. So what happens in the end is that the average person desires to withdraw from it all. Now, how does he withdraw from it all? Several ways. One, he pretends it doesn't happen. Two, he says it's all highly exaggerated. Three, he buys a cabin in Maine. Uh, four, he reads nothing but, uh, let's say, uh, the Saturday Evening Post, Reader's Digest, and he sticks pretty close to watching gun smoke. Uh, so he is able to convince himself, you see. And in a way, he has philosophically built a box around himself. A box that is immune, you see, from uh, attacks from the outside, philosophical or, or otherwise. So if you're watching gun smoke, yeah, this is perfectly safe, you know. I mean, who can get mad about a gunfight that took place in 1870 in a town that never existed by two men that never were? You see, so this is a very interesting thing. So, naturally, everybody watches these. It is violence, but nonviolent violence. You know what I mean by that? If if somebody could figure out a non-sinful sin, everyone would want it. (laughs) You see... Uh, so so that uh, uh, so we like to say we don't like violence but we have we've been able to work out a non-violent violence play Gunsmoke is a good example of it Naked City is a good example of it a lot of gunfire there a lot of people getting shot but everyone knows they're actors and they're going to get up and they're going to walk right on to the set of the next show nobody really worries about it so it becomes non-violent violence but it's still violence, incidentally. So don't say you don't like violence when you're watching Gunsmoke, because you wouldn't watch it if they didn't shoot. Uh, <laughs> even if it's blanks against non-existent characters and non-existent, they're still shooting. Like a friend of mine said the other day, he says, everybody would immediately give up fishing if fish screamed when they were caught. Somehow fish can't communicate very well. It's interesting how the conservationists are always against shooting deer, but very few of them say anything about, let's say, catching bluefish. That the deer seem to be more human than bluefish. They walk around on the ground like you do. I mean, you don't swim 400 feet below the surface like a fish. And so if fish could learn to scream, there would be no fishermen within 10 minutes. Now, if, and you say, well, it's just the, it's the thrill of landing the fish. What if I worked out a device that you could, uh, that, that you could cast out there, and if you cast well enough, this device would attach itself to your line and would give you four times the fight of a bluefish? And you might even lose. W- you wouldn't go. Now, you say that you're giving the fish a 50 50 chance. Oh, well, are you? Are you standing a chance to lose? Have you ever heard of a guy that was pulled in by the fish? And landed by the bluefish? I doubt it. You say, no, no, no. He has no chance. His only chance is to escape, but not to win. So he does not have a 50 50 chance. Not at all. In fact, the cards are weighted in your favor. Now, 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 follow that. And this is coming, by the way, from a fisherman. <laughs> Uh, so, so the the, the things the, it gets quite complicated when you when you really consider yourself what you really are and what you really want. It would be no fun fishing unless there was something alive on the end of that line that you could kill. Let's admit it; it's the truth. Okay, fishermen, are you going to tell me you let them all go? You are, huh? What kind of a traumatic experience you think it is to a bluefish to get dragged out of the water by a hook? And you think you're doing him a favor by letting him go? What are you talking about? <laughs> I, I'd say a good seventy-five percent of the fish that are let go eventually die as the result of the shock of being caught. I know this this is a problem too. Uh, but but uh, and I, I'm not against fishing. I'm merely saying what are we? See, we started out tonight and said, did you find out who you are? Well, did you? So, so in the end, now this is, this is the thing, don't go away. What a guy does, you see, is desire, when things get too involved, to literally build a box around him. Why do you think that more guys today are building homes in the suburbs than ever before? Things are getting too tough. And more and more guys are retreating to those boxes. There is a sense of safety as long as the lawn is out there and the shutters are around you. Uh, it may be false, but there is a sense of this. As a matter of fact, most bomb shelters are only that. They're like uh, placebos. You see, uh, you know what? Is it a placebo? Well, well. Here, here's here's a very significant little thing of our time. One day. Do you know anything about the uh, the laws of probability of suicide all right I'll tell you something about that Why do I know about this trivia i don't know I guess because I'm interested in life and if you're interested in life by the way you become interested in death which is a a, a another facet of life don't think it isn't so you're you're fascinated by all these various things now on the on the hand of on the uh on the side of Probability. Do you know that, that uh, a, an insurance adjuster can look at a victim of a disaster and can tell almost with, with, with absolute certainty whether he committed suicide or not? Because there are ways of committing suicide people take. For example, it is almost... It, one of the rarest of all suicides is to leap from a moving vehicle. That's a rare suicide. Are you aware of that? To do it to kill yourself. However, to leap from a window is another thing. That's the, one of the commonest. To leap from a stationary object. Interesting. Uh, so uh, here here is a note, uh, probably of one of the rarest of all types of suicide that just came in, and I think it's significant. Listen, of our time, probably would never have been conceived a thousand years ago. Syracuse, New York. A man whose body was found in an elaborately built plywood box in a hayfield apparently committed suicide by sealing himself in the box. All they found in the box was a flashlight. Somehow within the box, yet he had to have light. That's an intriguing story. He committed suicide by sealing himself in a box. Yes. I waited till the large woman with the awful hat took up her sack of groceries and went out, peering at the tomatoes and lettuce on her way. The clerk asked me what mine was. Have you got a box? I asked. A a large box. I want a box to hide in. You want a box? he asked. "I I I want a box to hide in, I said. What do you mean, he said. You mean a big box? I said I meant a big box, big enough to hold me. I haven't got any boxes, he said. Only cartons and cans come in. I tried several other groceries, and none of them had a box big enough for me to hide in. There was nothing for it but to face life out. I didn't feel strong, and I'd had this overpowering desire to hide in a box for a long time. What do you mean you want to hide in this box? One grocer asked me. Uh, It's a form of escape, I told him. Hiding in a box, it it circumscribes your worries and the range of your anguish. You don't see people either. How the hell do you eat when you're in the box? Asked the grocer. How in the hell do you get anything to eat? I I said that I had never been in a box and I didn't know, but that would take care of itself. Well, he said finally, I haven't got any boxes, only some par- pasteboard cartons that cans come in, sorry buddy. It was the same every place. I gave up when it got dark and the groceries closed and hid in my room again. I turned out the light and lay on the bed. You feel better when it gets dark. I could have hid in the closet I suppose, but people are always opening doors. Somebody would find you in a the closet, they would be startled and you'd have to tell them why you were in the closet nobody pays any attention to a big box lying on the floor you could stay in it for days and nobody'd think to look in it not even, not even the cleaning woman my cleaning woman came the next morning and woke me up I was still feeling bad I asked her if she knew where I could get a large box how big a box you want she said I want a box big enough for me to get inside of I said She looked at me with big, dim eyes There's something wrong with her glands She's awful, but she has a big heart Which makes it worse She's unbearable Her husband is sick And her children are sick And she is sick, too I got to thinking how pleasant it would be If I were in a box now And didn't have to see her I I would be in a box right there in the room And she wouldn't know I wondered if you have a desire to bark or laugh When someone who doesn't know Walks by the box you're in Maybe she would have a spell with her heart If I did that and would die right there. The officers and the elevator man and Mr. Grammage would find us. Funny doggone thing happened at the building last night, the doorman would say to his wife. I-, I let this woman up to clean 10F, and she never come out, see? She's never been in there more than an hour, but she never come out, see? So when it got time for me to go off duty, why, I says to Krennic, who was on the elevator, I said, what the hell do you suppose happened to the woman cleans 10F? He says he didn't know. He says he never seen her after he took her up. So I spoke to Mr. Grammage about it. I'm sorry to bother you, Mr. Grammage, I says. There's something funny about that woman cleans 10F. So I told him. So he said we'd better have a look. And we all three goes up and knocks on the door and rings the bell, see, and nobody answers. So he said we'd have to walk in. So Krennic opened the door and we walked in and here was this woman, cleans the apartment dead as a herring on the floor. And the gentleman that lives there was in a box. The cleaning woman kept looking at me it was hard to realize she wasn't dead. It's a form of escape, I murmured. What'd you say? She asked dully. You don't know of any large packing boxes, do you? I asked. "Uh, No, I don't, she said. I haven't found one yet, but I still have this overpowering urge to hide in a box. Maybe it'll go away. Maybe I'll be all right. Maybe it'll get worse. It's hard to say. That was one of America's outstanding humorists, James Thurber. A real buff. And by the way, the box principle is also associated with extreme isolationism of many forms there are many ways of building a box to hide it and in the end about all you can say is maybe it'll go away maybe i'll be all right maybe it'll get worse it really is hard to say